Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Okay, so this may be an imperfect recreation of how we talk to one another uh, here at the Colin McEnroe Show, but I do periodically say we should occasionally do shows that make people uncomfortable. Why aren't we doing shows that we haven't done a show that's made people really uncomfortable in a long time? And I was saying that at one of our meetings, and Betsy Kaplan said, who's the senior producer here, said, well, I have one coming. And I said, well, what show is that? And she, <laughs> I don't actually ever take that kind of tone with Betsy Kaplan. I know better. But um, but in my story, I'm very, you know, snarky. So what show is that? I said. And she said, well, I have a show that, among other things, involves the question of whether parents should be licensed to be parents. Uh, and I thought, well, that could make people uncomfortable. So here we are. It's not just a show about that. It's about I think it's about sort of all, many of the latent ideas we have about being parents, about the notion of having children. So, for example, in the second segment, we'll be talking about whether or not one child per couple type China type policies actually may maybe make sense and help the planet and aren't completely incompatible with American values. And in the final segment, we're, we're going to talk about, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about, well, the, the notion uh, of, well, let me just backtrack and say, for example, in 2014, there was kind of a celebrated case where um, a nine-year-old girl was playing, uh, left by her mother to play in a park nearby the McDonald's where the mother uh, worked. The mother had no other child care solution, and so uh, she sort of had her nearby. She was arrested. The child was taken away from her, all this kind of stuff. So... Um, in that, in the final segment today, we're going to talk about that. What are our assumptions about um, who should be allowed to do what? Uh, how much you can pay out the rope uh, of parenting? And in particular, particular, we're going to talk about a Utah measure, which actually, actually kind of tries to protect parents who make their own decision about how much freedom and independence uh, their children should have. But here at the beginning, we are going to deliver on Betsy Kaplan's promise. Uh, we are going to talk to you spe- specifically also about an imagined future, uh, an imagined future, uh, actually maybe two imagined futures, uh, where the decisions about who gets to have which children and who has to have which children are taken away uh, from individual parents and placed in the hands of authorities. Uh, joining me here in studio is Kristen Setsi, uh, writer and author of, most significantly, the novel The Age of the Child. First of all, welcome to our studios. Thank you. So uh, let's set this up a little bit. Uh, the book begins in a not-too-distant future, uh, and, and in this not-too-distant future, um, reproductive choice uh, has been essentially removed from people. Uh, you have the baby or else. You have the choice to conceive. Yes, right. Yep. But you can't have <laughs> As birth- we do now. You can't have birth control. Um, you can't uh, have an abortion, and even your miscarriages will be investigated. Correct. correct? Yeah. So, uh, talk about why why you sketched out that particular scenario. Because it's not very far fetched. We already have people trying to restrict um, access to abortion. We have people like Rick Santorum who have argued about the dangers of birth control. Um, if you go to the extreme right 
in this conversation, you will find people who think that abortion and birth control should all be wiped out so that we can preserve the sanctity of the potential for life. Right. I mean, it always seems to some of us, I, I would place myself somewhere near the middle, left of the middle here, but I always feel like if you're opposed to abortion, you ought to be in favor of a birth control because birth control has a way of lowering the necessity of, uh, of abortions. But there are a whole bunch of people who just don't see it that way. So you've got you, that futurescape. And, and in that futurescape, we should say, you imagine a world in which one of the most visible results are what are called abandons, uh, just children who, because of all this, are born to parents who don't want them or can't have them or simply are, are in no position to, to deal with these children who have been essentially forced uh, upon them. And their solution is to just leave them like the proverbial, proverbial babies in baskets that, that populate Victorian literature. They populate our country right now. It wasn't right. too long ago that people were dropping kids as old as, I think, 17 on hospital doorsteps. And just recently on local news, there was video footage of a guy dropping a car carrier in front of a bank or I don't remember the building, but he was caught on TV, you know, abandoning a baby there. So people do it now. So now just imagine that every single person who can't afford it or doesn't want it is forced to have child after child after child. Right. So um, and you have these two protagonists, uh, Catherine and Margaret, uh, who have different uh, views of how their own personal destinies need to play out. Maybe you can uh, give us a sense of each of these women. Yes, Margaret is very happy to have her child. Um, so she's, you know, she's very thrilled about her pregnancy. She's wanting to talk about her pregnancy. But Catherine, who has never wanted a child and who, thanks to the absence of birth control, found herself pregnant, um, is doing the best she can to ignore the fact that she's pregnant. And part of that is not talking about it and not acknowledging it. And so she kind of distances herself from her friends so that they don't have to have those conversations. All right. So then we fast forward about 25 years. Uh, we've got two. We've got a new generation. We've got two new women. Um, they, however, are bumping up against different realities. Things have changed. Uh, how have things changed? Well, thanks to every single person having children, many of them people who can't afford them or don't want them, and the the abandons or the drops who have reached high numbers, and because of the increase in child abuse, um, it's been decided that, okay, this is not, is not working. We have to do something. We have to do something to protect the quality of life of these children who are being born. Um, so they enact parent licensing. The explain, government does. Yeah, explain how parent licensing works. Well, it's very fair. This is an altruistic government trying to do the best they can for children. So they, you know, they just want to make sure that you are, you don't have a history of violence. Um, you are financially able to take care of the kids and you don't even have to have the finances yourself. You can get, you know, financial backers or family members to help you out. They really just want to make sure the kids will be fed, clothed, taken to the hospital and loved. Um, so and, and and explain what so you say this is very fair uh, and that is very much how you feel. Um, I think that in a parent licensing situation, it is probably a best case scenario for the children. Yes. I mean, in in each case, we have 
um, a government superseding individual choice, right? So in the first scenario, scenario, the government supersedes individual choice, makes everybody have babies whether they want them or not. Um, you know, the, the price of sex is babies. Um, in, in the second um, uh, scenario, we have a government, again, superseding choice, saying, well, yeah, maybe you should have a baby, maybe you shouldn't, right? Well, they aren't trying to make anybody have a child. I mm. mean, they do encourage children if you prove right. to be a, you know, a, a good member of society, but they don't um, they don't make anyone have a child. You just have to undergo an evaluation if you would like to have one. So how do people react when you bring up this idea? I have had people who have children say, we really need something like this. And I don't mm. think they mean it in a real way, because if it, if it really happened in the real world, um, it would be taken advantage of, obviously. And, mm. you know, racism would come in, classism would come in, it would just get really dirty. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of people who say you need a license to fish, you need a license to drive. Mm -hmm. And raising children is treated two different ways in our society. People mm -hmm. say it's the most noble job, it's the most important job, it's the hardest job. Um, but simultaneously, they'll say everyone should do it. Oh, you don't want to do it? You should do it. And if it's the hardest, most noble job, I'm not quite sure how those two things um, work together. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm getting, looking at Twitter here. The concept of licensing, this is from Stephanie. You know, the concept, concept of licensing parents is so offensive, I will have trouble listening to it being discussed. There's already so much prejudice imposed on people outside the reigning norms. We don't need to cement it in place with regulations. You probably hear versions of this a lot. Yes, and I think it's all it is. The reason I wrote this was to um, present a flip side of of trying to limit birth control and abortion. Mm -hmm. If the concern for children or the concern for the the fetus or the to-be child is, is so prominent that you would restrict the rights of existing people so that they can have these babies, if the kids are that important, are they not also important enough to protect by ensuring that only those who won't abuse and neglect them are raising them? You have five kids dead a day of abuse and neglect, mm -hmm. um, at least the for the reported ones. Um, you know, most of them are killed under the age of four. I mean, there you can read horrifying stories on the news all the time. And again, I'm not realistically suggesting parent licensing. This is just presenting the mm -hmm. flip side argument. If you care about kids, isn't it worth it to maybe consider having a different conversation about procreation and, and thinking more about it rather than presenting it as the default option for every single person? Right. Um, trying to get a conversation going anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when I th when we thought about this, when we talked about this also, I, like I realized I grew up, I'm older than you are, I, I grew up in a world where there were almost never any depictions of unsuccessful parents, inappropriate parents, uh, parents who really, you know, were not getting the job done at all, parents who really constituted some kind of menace to their children. I don't know. There might have been some Twilight Zone episodes or something. But basically what we saw were happy families all the time. We leave it to Beaver and life with father and my three sons. And no matter what, you know, the children were well cared for and the parents were thoughtful about their jobs. And if they made mistakes, uh, they tried to correct those mistakes. Um, as we headed into the 90s in particular, uh, maybe late 80s and in the 90s, we started to see more, for the most part, for comic potential. We started to see, you know, families like married with children uh, and, well, and that, this particular family. These hotels are made of Legos. Bart, you're cheating. Lisa, it was probably an accident. Oh, sure. You take his side just because he bought you that house on St. James Place. Who else is going to take care of her? Dad? Well, you little... 
Stop fighting! Mom, that's not how you pry them apart. I've been prying them apart since before you were born. So, so I mean, we sort of know that Homer and Bart, um, I mean, uh, on the one hand, I think it kind of reflects our attitude that, well, you know, if people love one another, they sort of do bad things to one another. Uh, in the end of the day, though, the, you know, the family, I mean, one of the weird lessons of The Simpsons is at the end of the day, this family perseveres and it continues. And, and it, you know, uh, everybody is proven to somehow or other, despite all their incredible flaws, have good hearts towards one another. Of course, these people are drawn. They don't really exist. Um, but we, we also hear even in that something that if we were aware of it next door, we'd make a call about it. I mean, we don't license families right now, but we do sometimes make a call uh, if we feel as though the family, we must have some standard that we expect families to meet because otherwise you wouldn't report anybody ever. Yeah, it's nice to want to have a standard. Um, that standard didn't work in Maine with those two families who are now in trouble because two different separate families have killed their children. Um one of the little girls was punched by her dad for dropping her teddy bear or something ridiculous like that before before they killed her. Um, what I think is kind of Im more important and actually why I wrote this was to get people talking about having kids in a way that is in a way that the question becomes uh, as someone who's never wanted kids, people ask me, why don't you want kids? Mm -hmm. I think it would be better for all the kids involved and all the people who regret being parents and all the people who have kids without even thinking about the lifetime of uh, responsibility they're, they're taking on. If the default were not to have kids and the question were, oh, you had kids, why? What made you want kids? That would an interesting choice. You're inviting you know, financial risk, stress, sleeplessness, possible damage to your romantic relationship, all of which I'm sure is worth it if you've given it a lot of thought, but what an interesting choice. Why'd you do that? Right. So you're sort of saying, wh where's the default setting? Well, if the default setting is if if everything works, you should be pushing out babies uh, or at least a baby or two uh, uh, and building a family. Uh, and that's the default setting. Explain mm -hmm. why you're not using the default setting. You're sort of saying maybe the default setting should be the opposite and explain affirmatively what it is that's making you, besides just conformity and adherence to tradition or whatever, what's making you want to do this? Right, because I think if it comes to that, then we don't have the assumption among everyone being, oh, having everyone has kids, it's just what you do. Oh, having kids is easy, because it's not easy, and a lot of people are so not thinking about it that almost half of all pregnancies are unintended or unplanned. And that's, you know, it's... It, that just seems weird for such a monumental life choice that that not only creates a whole new life, but then becomes responsible for this new life. As people say, that's the most important thing you can do. So it should really be more thought-inducing or whatever the word is than just, oh, it's just what people do. I'm just, oopsie, I'm pregnant. Mm. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, one thing that people say is... Um, it's so enriching. It will be so enriching. It will enrich my life. It will enrich my, enrich my marriage. My husband and I, or my wife and I, will be uh, so much um, emotionally and psychologically and spiritually richer as a result of, of having done this. Um, one of your arguments is that that is very focused on the two adults in question as opposed to the children. Yeah, and it will be. I mean, anybody who makes a choice to have a child is doing it for their own personal reasons. There's no way to get around uh, the idea of it. And selfish is going to be used in the wrong is going to be taken the wrong way here. But 
people who say, I want a child, and then they have a child are doing it because they want to, whether it's to hopefully not to fix a marriage and hopefully not to do anything to your relationship, because if that doesn't work, then what do you do? But as long as you're thinking about it and considering all the things that could come into play that your own personal risks as a pregnant person, uh, potential risk to the child, I mean, consider all that stuff, fine. Want to have a kid? Fine. But at least think about it. It should be something that takes thought and consideration and conversation and not just that's what you do. Um, you've actually uh, got a parent uh, licensing Twitter account. Uh, <laughs> I, I would imagine that also would be raving, waving a red flag at uh, a Twitterverse full of bulls. Uh, first of all, say why, why do you, why, once again, as a conversation starter, I assume, yeah. Um, yeah, because I think it's an important conversation. If you, it's it's just to get people thinking about how much they actually care, not just about creating life and making babies, but who. <sighs> Why do you want so many people to have them? Why why say to someone who doesn't want kids, you should have them? I won't even say that to someone who doesn't want a dog. Oh, you should get a dog. Mm-hmm. That's, you don't do that to people. So if this can create a conversation about how much people care about the actual quality of life of these kids being born, then I think that's valuable. Um, let's sort of create a kind of middle ground option uh, that we can talk about here. So, I mean, I'm looking <laughs> at our Twitter account, and there's some people kind of freaking out about this whole idea. But let's sort of look at it in terms of a, a middle ground. So the middle ground would be um, most people can get their driver's license. Um, you know, I mean, unless you really, really, I mean, the driver's test, you might have to take it a couple of times or whatever, you can get your driver's license. Um, the, that permitting process isn't there to keep people from driving. It's to make sure people know a few basic things about driving, know what the traffic rules are, and are able to safely uh, operate a, multi, uh, a motor vehicle. It, it seems to me that maybe an even slightly softer version of that maybe could work. What what would be, I mean, I don't know why I'm asking you what the objection would be since you're, this is more likely to come from you than from a lot of people. But I mean, the, I guess when thinking, reading your book and thinking about this whole question, I do find myself thinking, well, what if we said to people, yeah, yeah, you can have, have as many kids as you want, but first go through this course, go through this little course. Let's make sure that you know, you know, breastfeeding, bottle feeding, toilet training, just kind of the basics, that you know what the basics are of keeping a child healthy, uh, that you've given someone thought to some of the questions we'll be talking about in the final segment section of the show. When can you leave a child alone? You know, let's make sure that you've just thought out all these things. It'll take, you know, three or four weeks, uh, and uh, then you'll just take a test, and then you're done. Um I mean, there are probably going to be some constitutional obstacles to this and stuff like that. But, I mean, I don't know. I would imagine for somebody like you, somebody with your philosophy, that doesn't seem like a completely crazy idea. Even No, I don't think so. And and they should have to care around one of those fake babies that cries and, and mm. needs things. But right. even maybe not even for people who want children to have. Again, I don't actually believe that we should have parent licensing. This right. is this is fiction. This is a book. It's a dystopia. Mm. It's 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 all in really great fun. Um, but I do think it would be useful if it were required class in high school, not just for kids to carry around an egg and make sure it doesn't crack, but to have to take home a little crying baby and, you know, get graded on caring for it so they can be, you know, introduced to the crying, the the needs it has, the difficulty of, of just having it only for a month, you know, and then that might teach them a lot. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, once again, uh, the course would be mandatory. Mm-hmm or could be mandatory, not uh, as a hurdle to parenthood, but just everybody takes it. 
Right. Um, makes sense. Uh, let's see. We have a tweet from Jessica. I would prefer a children's rights movement over a parental rights movement. The, the in, This ensures children, uh, all children, parity with civil liberties and human social rights accorded to adults. It, it's a little nebulous. I mean, it's hard to know. What, but, I mean, that's kind of what you're talking about, that children should have rights uh, that maybe supersi- supersede parental rights, but maybe that first right is to really be wanted and understood and cared for. Yes. I think the most important right is to be born into a situation that is hospitable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for for kids, for people who want to adopt kids, they have to prove they have to be a certain age. They have to prove that they have a home environment that's conducive to raising a child. They have to prove they can afford the child. Adoptive kids are given at least some sort of, um, you know, the parents are given some sort of evaluation. You know, can you do this? Are you are you fit to take care of this child? Um, but we don't do anything for these poor kids who are born biologically. And then and I know this isn't the majority. It's not it's not like 90 percent of our kids are abused or neglected. But those who are, I mean, they're not statistics. This is a this is a being who did not exist, brought into a situation where the person who is supposed to be its biggest protector is throwing a fist into this kid's face. It's just it's unimaginable. Uh, I'm getting a, a tweet from, uh, not a tweet, a message from uh, from uh, Wolfie, who's in there, uh, running the board for this show and has just qualified for a special kind of mortgage. And she says, I just found out that I'm required to take a homeowner's class before buying my house. Cool. Fine <laughs> with me. And you kind of, in a very darkly hilarious way, one of, the, one of the times you are required to take a course here in Connecticut is when you get divorced. <laughs> you actually have to go through a, a, a divorce course and counseling program so that you will... Once again, have acknowledged that you, the children from this divorce uh, have rights and statuses and that you have to sort of think things out. As a divorced person, I, I can tell you, I, I went through this course. I was happy enough to do it. Um, didn't regard it as a, a, an encumbrance. But it was amazing. I mean, pretty much everybody else <laughs> class I was in. was really mad that they had to do this, thought they had it all figured out. The more that I was in discussion segments with uh, sections with them, I thought, oh, no, they don't have it figured out. In fact, one of the reasons they're so resistant to taking this course is because they just want to do whatever they want to do. And they haven't, you know, they haven't prioritized their anger versus their children's needs and stuff like that. I don't know. Sitting through that course persuaded me that this course was completely necessary. So, I mean, yeah, maybe at the on the education front, that's what we're really talking about. If we are interested, if we if we as a society say we love children, mm. um, that can't just mean we love the fact that they're born. I mean, it has to mean I love them. I want them to be cared for. I want them to to not be neglected. I want them. I want them to be happy. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're going to take a break here. We're uh, going to talk uh, about a different aspect of this, which is just like how many children should people have, uh, which will be probably uh, another exciting topic on social media. I touched my belly overwhelmed by what I had been chosen to perform. But then an angel came one day, told me to kneel down and pray. For unto me a man child would be born. Oh, this crazy circumstance. I knew his life deserved a chance. 
we're back. We are discussing um, just kind of the, some of our latent, or as I said in the previous segment, default notions about who should have children, when should children come into the world, uh, and uh, how should people think about that whole equation. Uh, one of the occasions for having this conversation is a novel called The Age of the Child by Kristen Setsy. She is here in studio with me. This uh, book is out in paperback. I mean, one of the things that's in the book, I think, is the the ungovernable impulses, the the way that these impulses, whatever they are, that we have about the notion of childbirth uh, and reproduction, uh, how how they are difficult to tame. I mean, in, in the first uh, segment, you, you have Catherine, who's just like a coyote uh, chewing her leg off to get out of the situation, uh, right? I mean, the society is telling her, the society has a very clear, unambiguous code about this. The society is saying, this is what you do. You are pregnant. You are having a baby. That's it. No questions asked. Um, Punishments, even for the thought crime, maybe of thinking a little bit uh, differently about that or browsing a certain aisle in the drugstore. Don't do things like that. So so you've got that. And then you've got kind of the reverse of that, too. You've got uh, another society 25 years down the line that says, We'd like to think this through for you and with you. But you've got another set of characters and their impulses also are not that well one of the one of their one character's impulses are, I would say, equally unamenable to government regulation. Yes. And the first one, Catherine I'm is trying to do spoilers here. Yeah. I'm I'm trying it's <laughs> I'll try not to do that too. Um Catherine as a child-free person, mm-hmm. um, only envisions her life without a child, mm-hmm. and so of course, when if abortion and birth control become illegal, you know th- you only have so many options, and um, so she does the best she can to uh, parent without becoming a parent, mm-hmm. and that's the best she can. That's the, you know she finally gets herself out of the out of the trap, I guess, but mm-hmm. you know she's limping around on her stumpy leg. Um, and in the second world, we have this person who decides rather suddenly that she wants to have a child. Um, she's not necessarily the best candidate, uh, according to the Parent Licensing Bureau. Um, so, yes, somebody who wants to have a child who probably shouldn't is going to have a difficult time in this period. All right. So I think this leads very well into a conversation that Kristen and I are going to have with Sarah Conley, associate professor and chair of the philosophy department uh, department at Bowdoin College and the author of One Child. Do we have the right to more? Sarah Conley, welcome to our conversation. Thank you for having me. So uh, even the subtitle of your book is uh, equally provocative, um, and, and it certainly begins to lay out your argument. But why don't you flesh it out a little bit more for us? Explain what it is that you're arguing here. I am arguing that, sad as it is, in this point in time, uh, any two people who want to reproduce only have a right to have one child, no more than that. And the reason for this is simply that every uh, informed organization says we're heading towards untenable overpopulation. So the United Nations says at our present rate, we're going to reach 9.7 billion people by the year 2050, which is in the lifetime of many of us. Uh, And then even more, it's going to go up to 11.2 billion by 2100. And all 
estimates as to how much water we'll have, how much food we can have, and not to mention climate change, say we can't sustain that. So uh, I think some people listen to that and say, well, aren't you preaching to the wrong choir? Um, the birth rate in the U.S. is steadily declining. It's even declining in India. I know China has changed its policy. I don't know what's happened as a result of that, but for a while the birth rate in China was going down too. Mm-hmm. Wherever the, the trend line is going up, it's not in any of those places. Well, yeah, it is. So there are two things. Uh, there's the birth rate, but then there's also the population increase. And if you already have a lot of people, then even if per couple they have fewer kids, you get even more people, right? Mm -hmm. So if you had 100 people and they just have two children each, we're going to have 300 people. So even when the fertility rate is declining, the population goes up. It's not like the UN in making these projections didn't actually look at the fertility rate, they mm-hmm. did. So this is assuming the fertility rate continues to drop, we still get these huge numbers. So how do you propose, I mean, there's way, there are sort of carrots, there are sticks, mm-hmm. there are sticks that are harder some, than some other sticks, right. and there are carrots that are sweeter than some other carrots. What's your preference here? Well, of course, ideally, uh, this would be something people do voluntarily. Mm-hmm. And that's possible because, as you say, we've already voluntarily chosen to have fewer people than previous generations did for those of us who have access to contraception and can choose. So one pretty easy thing to do is education. A lot of people just don't know these facts about population, and we could let them know those. Another pretty charity thing would be to maybe give a tax break to people as they have fewer children. Right now, you get a tax break in the U.S. when you have more children, but we could reverse that. So ideally, that sort of thing would be sufficient. All right, so let's talk about this a little bit more. But um, since we have a, here uh, in studio with us uh, a novelist, you thought a little bit about how these measures, uh, how measures uh, that attempt to shape reproductive tendencies, either one way or, an, or another, might play out in the future. Uh, Kristen, how does this sound to you? I like the idea, but people won't even agree to windmills for environmental protection. <laughs> so they're not going to give up their kids unless because it were. A woman named Laura Carroll has a really great book called The Baby Matrix, and in it she discusses um, pronatalism. And our country is a pronatalist country that not only encourages children but promotes babies and idealizes motherhood. I mean, which celebrity is pregnant? Why isn't Jennifer Aniston pregnant? Could she possibly be? If not, why not? Who else is pregnant? I mean, you know, mothers on commercials are the only ones who know how to clean, how to make pizza pockets, how to just what juice the family should be drinking. I mean, parenthood is so exalted in this country that everyone continues to think having a baby is the thing that makes you uh, a grown-up. It's what makes you a woman. It's what makes you responsible, valuable, worthwhile. I mean, first we have to get rid of that notion, I think, because nobody wants to give up that title. So, Sarah, I find myself, uh, Sarah Conley, uh, and I'm attempting to be one of the brighter students in your philosophy class, and I'm probably going to fail here. But when I think about these kinds of public policy questions, there's sort of two 
different strains of thought that kind of collide in my mind. One of them is that it makes sense to me as a matter of policy to make people pay for services that they use disproportionately. It's kind of why I like tolls. If you want to drive a lot, you want to drive 100 miles, good. You pay more to do that than I pay because I don't drive so much. Um, sounds great. Um, and so you could extend that to this. You could say, well, I mean, a child uh, will use a lot of services, will use a lot of educational services and other services, public services that are paid for out of the common funds. So uh, if you want to have five of these children, maybe you should pay more because you're using a whole bunch of services. You and your flock are using uh, a whole lot of services disproportionately. Now, that collides with another train in my head. And the, the other train is, on the other hand, we try to function collectively as a society. So we don't make people who have, we ideally anyway, have a society in which somebody with a debilitating disease at any stage of their life uh, is in some way not forced to pay the entire cost, that we don't see that as this public burden. I mean, I could, I could name lots of other things, but there's sort of ways in which we try to say, well, no, you know, it's not, you, it's not that you go forward paying what you cost. Uh, it's that we function together collectively, ideally under the best circumstances. So other than giving me a C plus in your course, what's your reaction to those two things as applied to sort of a, yeah, just have one baby kind of concept? Okay, well, you're both doing very well in my class. Uh, one, as to whether people would voluntarily give up having so many children, for one thing, we have, right? That's why the fertility rate is dropping. Uh, so we know it's possible. As to what you said, yeah, one reason we've given up number having so many children apparently is the costs of that. And I do think it's true that it would be fair to disincentivize having children if simply educating and giving you a tax break isn't enough. It would be fair to disincentivize it by charging you. Charging you how much? Charging you enough to discourage you from having more than one child. Now, is that somehow unfair and the collectivity should bear this cost? They can't. Right? I mean, there's just no way that society can keep climate change from occurring if the population keeps going up. They can't reproduce the topsoil that we're losing. We can't reproduce the fish stocks that have gone down drastically. So, whereas in some cases, yeah, you can outsource the cost and say, let the collectivity handle it, this is this is just an impossible situation for any collectivity to handle. So, so all um, we can do is say, okay, guys, we are going to institute a regulation if that's what it takes. It is going to cost you. And if you're saying we're interfering with your lives, we're saying, yeah, that's true. We have to because of the devastating harm you're going to do to other people if you keep reproducing this many kids. So let me ask you uh, both about one last area here, which is, 
So one of the other counter arguments here is that um, the more power that you give to uh, a government, uh, the more that you invite abuse of that power in a way that's unequal. So we don't have to look very far to see that in the history of the United States. Uh, if there were a Christian to be licensing uh, procedures or any kind of educational burden, qualification process to have children, uh, there's certainly been times, most of the time in the United States, where it would fall harder on uh, Native American indigenous uh, people who were effectively being extirpated. Uh, there are ways in which uh, African Americans have been treated differently. Uh, one can very easily imagine a scenario these days, right here in 2018, in which pe Muslim people would be asked to hold, or, or, or that the, the formal questions, the formal education process, the formal, qualifica formal qualification process would somehow or other be tilted in such a way as to make Muslim people seem as though they wouldn't be such good parents. Uh, their, their answers would somehow or other not be satisfactory the way the questions questioner would be worded. So I, as somebody who sort of looks at those things, I'm going to ask both of you, but Kristen, I'll start with you. Do you worry about that? Yes, which is why I don't really think parent licensing right. should be a real thing. But I do think that if we can get people thinking more about the children than they think about themselves, if they if they stop putting my my right to have children above the overall child welfare and child happiness, then we might see things changing like maybe in romantic comedies, it won't end with a big baby bump. Maybe instead of focusing on whether a, an actress is pregnant, we can focus on the next movie she's working on. Um, maybe television shows can just feature more characters who don't have children. If, if, we pr if we present having children as not such the norm, I think the overall conversation around it will change and people will naturally move toward changing their own behavior. I think we are ridiculously influenced by media, and the media has tremendous power to make us better people, actually. Um, so, yes, yeah, so change the culture, change the media. I'm with you. Um, Sarah Conley, uh, let's talk about this with a one-child-per-couple policy. Yeah. I mean, policies are full of loopholes, and the loopholes tend to be exploited by people who are well-connected, can afford good lobbyists, and aren't some uh, part of some derogated minority. So how do you make it fair? Well, I am not advocating licensing in the sense that you mean. Mm -hmm. no, so no. people who've talked about licensing have said you have to qualify to have a child. We're going to choose who's fit and who's not. And, of course, that does lend itself to abuse. But I am making an across-the-board policy but can, you, but can you make an across-the-board policy recognition? I mean, we, we know how other across-the-board policies go, and I feel like there are going to be people who said, well, you know, my first kid didn't get into Hotchkiss, so I really do need to have uh, a second kid, um, and, and I can hire the lawyer to help me get around this policy. Well, that would not be a reason to have a second child. I mean, so to reiterate, I am just saying uh, everyone is equally uh, – allowed to produce a child. I mean, sometimes we find after a child's been born, that person shouldn't be parenting it. But that aside, yeah, it is free to everyone. Now, you want to say, well, the policy could be abused. I can't deny that. I mean, every policy is capable of being abused. We have laws against murder. That policy can be abused, right? We have laws against graft. Those policies can be abused. But typically, instead of saying, well, if this policy could be abused, we shouldn't even adopt it, what we try to do is say, okay, we need a law against murder, and we try to minimize the abuses. 
because otherwise, just saying if it could ever be abused, we can't even think about it, is just going to lead to chaos. All right, we're going to have to stop there. This is fascinating stuff, but we're going to have to stop there. We've been talking to Kristen Setsi, uh, writer and author of uh, many novels include, and books, including most recently and relevantly The Age of the Child. That's the book that we've been talking about. Sarah Conley, associate professor and chair of the philosophy department at Bowdoin College, the author of One Child, Do We Have the Right to More? Now we're going to go to another area of child rearing, the so-called free-range parenting after this. Think of a woman children that she'll bring into this world. All right, right before the show started, uh, Kion Wolf and I realized that we'd forgotten to have her uh, record any credits or thank you, so I will have to do that. I'm happy to do it. Kion Wolf is on the board today, making everything sound great and run great. Betsy Kaplan is the person who conceived this show and has produced it. Uh, Gar- Garnet McLaughlin, uh, Wonder Intern, uh, is there uh, on the phones and helping out in other ways. I'm not really sure uh, who else I have to mention. Amanda Fish, I'm sure, did something uh, to further this show. The, uh, Bill, the part of Bill Curry, of course, was played by Fred McMurray. Tomorrow, our show is about the plague of fake, fake news, which is an international problem. Uh, and, I mean, it's really an international problem. Uh, and if you think the hearings in Congress are going to reel in that kite, you are wrong. It is flying through the sky uh, and repopulating itself all the time. So we'll tell you more about that then. Well, meanwhile... Um, I think starting around 2014 in particular, there were lots of reports, starting with a report I think that came out of South Carolina uh, about a mother whose uh, nine-year-old daughter was on a, it was playing in a park uh, during the day while the mother worked nearby at a McDonald's. She was arrested. Uh, I believe uh, her child was taken away from her for 17 days. Um, But then that kind of triggered in the media. As these things do, the media started covering all kinds of other things where people called up because there's a seven-year-old kid who walks home alone from school or or, a bunch of things like that. And that, in turn, joined hands with something called the Free Range Parenting Movement. It was started by a woman named Lenore Skenazy, who's been on this show in the past. Uh, Her argument is, well, no, well, we over-supervise these kids. We don't teach them survival skills. I think she had her nine-year-old ride around alone on the New York subway system. Uh, But the truth is, We don't have any particular metric for thinking about this, for figuring out who's guilty of bad parenting and who's just being uh, a a brave and courageous uh, trailblazing parent and who's just a parent in need who can't find another solution. Uh, All of those things are possible. Uh, In Utah, they are trying to figure that out, uh, and we're going to talk about that right now. We'll start with Lincoln Fillmore, uh, which is certainly a good name for somebody in government, a Republican state senator in Utah representing the 10th district. So Lincoln Fillmore, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. And uh, explain what Utah has done. We passed a law that I sponsored through our legislature, passed unanimously through uh, through both houses, was signed by our governor a couple of weeks ago. It changes the definition of neglect mm-hmm. so that it amends out things like letting your kid go play at the park, letting your kid walk to and from school, engage in outdoor play, <clears throat> run an errand to the market, things like that, so that uh, as parents give their kids that degree of independence, the parents are not going to run the risk of running afoul of the law or having you know, government agents knock on their door and say, your kids are unsupervised, we're placing you under arrest and taking your kids out of your custody. 
So, uh, but I mean, uh, still we're at the level of heuristics a little bit here. I mean, you, you, does the law set actual guidelines? If you're eight years old, you can walk one mile home from school. But if you're seven year old, years old, that's too young. If you're nine years old, you can be alone in the house for an hour. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you define still what's a problem and what isn't? Uh, we just uh, define it by saying a child whose uh, basic needs are met and who is of sufficient age and maturity. And we didn't define what that age is because kids mature at different rates. And one eight-year-old might be perfectly capable of going to play at the park alone, and another might not. And so we wanted to leave that discretion up to the parents uh, to be able to make the judgment about what is the pace at which I want to give my kids a degree of independence so that they learn how to operate in the world in a self-reliant way. All right, so uh, let's add to the conversation uh, Jessica McCrory Colarco, uh, assistant professor of sociology at Indiana University and the author of a new book, Negotiating Opportunities How the Middle Class Secures Advantages in Schools. So, Jessica McCrory Colarco, as you hear about this, and you're quite familiar already with this uh, Utah law, do you have worries about, I mean, one person's good parent, good trailblazing, interesting independence fostering parent is another person's bad parents parent and in some ways we may even bring some of our prejudices and presuppositions into that equation what are your concerns absolutely so i agree with senator fillmore and with the free range parenting activists more generally that this law potentially offers important protections for parents it could help to normalize or rather renormalize free range parenting it has the potential to encourage well-meaning citizens and authorities to think twice before they report a child that they see in public by themselves. Uh, but the problem here is that the law may not protect all parents equally because of how it's written, and it may not guarantee all kids the same chance to live free range because we can see that essentially uh, Senator Fillmore was mentioning the clause of basic needs being met and a child of, of sufficient age and maturity. And so for middle and upper middle class parents, and especially middle and upper middle class white parents, that's an easy bar to meet. Uh, essentially, they, uh, they're able to meet all of their kids' needs. They don't have to let their kids stay home at relatively young age. Um, and so certainly they deserve that protection. Uh, but my argument is that all parents, sort of regardless of race or resources, deserve that same protection. Uh, but the law, because of how it's written, with those clauses about basic needs and about sufficient age and maturity, might not extend those same protections to poor and working class parents and to parents of color. Uh, essentially, it seems like the law, the way that it's written, protects only what we might call good free-range parents. Um, it says, and, and so the problem then is that some parents may struggle to reach that good parent bar. Parents with limited resources may have no choice but to leave their children unsupervised, even at relatively young ages, it, that the state may, I mean, certainly the parent might feel that their five-year-old is capable of staying home or, or has to leave their, their five-year-old home alone without supervision. But if a neighbor calls the police, um, then certainly I'm guessing there will still be uh, authorities sent to investigate, and the state might decide that five is too young in that case, even if the parent has to let the child stay home. If they don't have food in the pantry at home, uh, the state might decide that's not sufficient. Um, and parents of color might implicitly be perceived as bad parents, even if they haven't done anything wrong. So let's let's go back to um, Senator Fillmore for a second here. And so let's take an actual case, and it's one that uh, Jessica is quite familiar with. 2014, Deborah Harrell is a 46-year-old black mother in South Carolina. She's arrested for allowing her 9-year-old daughter to play at the park while she was working at a nearby McDonald's. Uh, she went up spending the night in jail. Her daughter was placed in foster care for 17 days. How would you think that case would be handled under um, Utah's new law? Uh, there would be no crime. It, it would The behavior that she engaged in, that is, letting her child play unsupervised at a park, 
is specifically exempted from the definition of neglect. So the government could not have charged her with neglect unless there was some other factor, like the child was malnourished. Right. So, um, I don't know. Jessica, what's, what's your take on that? I mean, I certainly agree that that's what should happen. My, my question is whether that actually is what would happen. Uh, for example, I, I mean, certainly it's possible that we don't know the circumstances of what was going on at home. It, it seems likely that there wasn't anything in terms of, given that the, the child was eventually returned to her mother, um, that there wasn't anything that the state found to be problematic at home. And so my hope is in that case that, that she wouldn't be charged. And that, uh, But it's, it's entirely possible that because she was black, because of the, the circumstances, uh, that she might have still had to go through that or still had someone report on her and still have to go through that kind of challenge. I think my, my main concern is with families, especially that are struggling financially, um, that are uh, kind of, do they have food at home for their children? If, they, if, if mom is on her way home to, uh, planning to pick up dinner on her way home from work, uh, but has to leave her child alone in the meanwhile with no food in the house. Is that okay? Or is that not well, okay? Let me also just turn this around. I'll, I'll be an advocate for a different kind of thing here. So Senator Fillmore, I mean, one another way that our society is set up, I think it's sort of set up kind of preemptively so that uh, I think what a lot of adults think is, I see this situation, I don't know what's going on, but it doesn't look right to me. And so rather than wait to see if it's going to play out all right and leave a child in some kind of potential danger, I'm going to make a call. I'm going to call the cops. I'm going to call child authorities. And I'm going to say, like, I see this situation and it doesn't look so great. And the child authorities often will come and sort of say, well, it doesn't look so great. But And we're going to just rather than take a chance on it, you know, yeah, maybe we're going to take custody of this child for 17 days uh, until we get a handle on this situation. And then if it's OK, she'll get her child back. That's exactly Exactly what happened with Deborah Harrell. I don't know. Your law looks like it, it functions a little bit differently. It, it assumes the best case instead of the worst case. Like it basically, just it grants the parents the deference to be able to make those decisions on their own, and so that when our Child Protective Services Department gets such a call like that, they'll be trained specifically to ask questions about. Um, how old is this child, and is the child functioning well? Is she safe? Does he look malnourished? So that before they launch an investigation, they get uh, some basic information so that they can choose whether to proceed or not. And if they do proceed, because they're, they're proceeding at that point would be only to determine, is there something going on here besides a kid playing alone in a park? And if the only thing that's going on is a kid playing alone in a park, there's no investigation that we can undertake. All right. Um, we're going to have to stop there. I have a lot of interesting questions that I find interesting about this, but maybe we'll have those uh, on another day. It's been a very, very interesting conversation so far. And thank you, Senator Lincoln Fillmore. Boy, what a great name if you're in politics. Uh, Jessica McCrory Calarco uh, is a writer who uh, looks at these kinds of situations. If you don't have time to read her book, you could at least read Free Range Parenting's Unfair Double Standard. That was in The Atlantic. Thanks again to Betsy Kaplan for coming up with the show and Garnet McLaughlin, who uh, functioned as co-producer of this show. Lucky to have her as an intern. We'll be back tomorrow with that show about fake news.